0: Hello and welcome to the Dr. Jones Veterinary Secrets Podcast. This is episode 82. In today's podcast, we're talking about antibody titers in veterinary practice, costs, do they work and which ones are best, the link between antioxidants and cancer, is this important? And what you should do if your dog or cat has a bleeding nose, including the most common causes and an effective natural remedy. Veterinary Secrets is on all your favorite podcast apps, including iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. I'd sure appreciate it if you would subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Lastly, I encourage you to get a copy of my free book. It's at veterinarysecrets.com forward slash news. Understanding the use of antibody titers in veterinary practice. As concerns about over-vaccination and vaccine associated injuries have grown in human medicine, vaccine compliance has decreased. Likewise, the same thing has happened in veterinary medicine. We've got pet owners questioning vaccine protocols recommended by their veterinarians. Due to these concerns and you know real concerns from pet parents around like some of the vaccine secondary side effects, vaccine titers are being requested. So which titers are reliable? First, the only titers for which a positive test result has have a high correlation with protective immunity are for the vaccine-preventable diseases, including canine distemper virus, canine parvovirus, canine adenovirus, and feline panleukopenia virus. There are also titers for rabies virus and rabies, but that needs to be sent away. It can be done as an in-house lab. How should titer results be interpreted? Only positive antibody titers for these diseases we just talked about, distemper, parvo, adenovirus, and feline panleuk, can be interpreted as protection. Based on the current laws, a positive rabies antibody titer can only be interpreted as exposure to the vaccine. These results cannot be interpreted as an indication of protective immunity. When a titer produces a negative result for distemper parvo, or panleuk, veterinarians should not assume an adult patient with previous vaccine history is susceptible to the disease. Over time, antibody levels circulating in the blood will decrease in the absence of exposure, but the immune system possesses memory that can produce an immune response should it encounter the disease. A negative titer in a puppy undergoing its initial vaccine series indicates that the immune system has not yet responded to vaccines or may be unable to respond. Now, I wanted to talk about this new in-clinic vaccine titer test and some of your frequently asked questions. You know, recently studies have shown that many dogs and cats do not need to be vaccinated for diseases as often as was previously thought with some dogs and cats maintaining protective antibody titers for much more than a year, more likely you know, up to three years at least, after their last puppy boosters at one year of age. On the opposite end of the spectrum, there are some puppies and kittens that are considered non-responders that are shown to not hold protective antibodies against some of these serious diseases, even after receiving their puppy shots on schedule. There's one in-clinic test called the VaxiCheck Titer Test, it allows veterinarians to individualize each dog's vaccine protocol, giving only the vaccine for these diseases which, when blood antibody titers are shown to be non-protective. Here are some frequently asked questions. First, when should your dog have their titers tested? It's now recommended that every dog coming in after one year of age, after having received their puppy vaccines on schedule, should have their blood levels titer tested. This is gonna allow the vets to determine whether or not your dog responded well to their puppy vaccines, and now does not need an additional vaccine booster. Or at the time, it'll let them know if protective antibodies are low, and an additional booster vaccine is needed. Titer testing will also be recommended whenever vaccine is considered due for these diseases. I.e., you know, say they're saying in two to three years you would be getting distemper parvo you can do a titer test then as opposed to the booster. Titer testing will also allow uh, for dogs coming into to rescue. I see a rescued animal and we don't know what is their vaccine history. We can do a titer test as opposed to just giving them another vaccine. The option to titer test will be very important for dogs and cats who responded poorly to vaccination, i.e. vaccine reactions, or they've developed conditions linked to vaccines, you know, such as autoimmune disease, allergic skin disease, endocrine disease, some of the organ dysfunction diseases. Ideally, we want to be giving minimal vaccines. Tighter testing can even be done as young as two weeks after your puppy has received their final 16-week puppy vaccines. That's two weeks after. it. A test at the time will give you a peace of mind knowing that your puppy's immune system has responded well to the vaccines. They are in protected against some of these dangerous diseases what will this cost i mean this is a big question against many pet parents right and it's being cost prohibitive this in this one clinic they're saying unfortunately titer testing should not be considered as a cost-saving measure when it comes to vaccinating your dog although this in-clinic test is much more cost effective than previously having to send it out to an outside lab which is still what most clinics do. It's still more expensive to do the test than the vaccine. The current cost in this one clinic is $53 plus tax, which is pretty on par for some of the vaccines. So it's really is coming down in price. What happens if your dog shows good titers, i.e. protective levels of antibodies? If adequate titers are found, then your dog doesn't need to receive the boosters of distemper adenovirus that day. Testing would then need to be repeated once yearly to check if titer levels are adequate and vaccination is needed. Some dogs can go up to 7 years or more before titer testing reveals a booster vaccine is needed. When adequate titers are found, a certificate similar to a vaccine certificate can be issued that should allow your dog to be recognized as having up-to-date vaccine status that can be used for kennels or grooming facilities. What happens if your dog shows low titers, i.e. low antibody levels, are found to be below the protective level? If an inadequate antibody titers are found, then they're prompted to give the vaccine boosters to your dog so they actually can get high enough levels of antibody protection. After giving the vaccine, they would, they would resume titer testing three years after this vaccine is given. For animals not healthy enough to receive vaccination, your animals with severe allergies, autoimmune disease, knowing that antibody levels are inadequate for protection is a valuable information to have, even if it is decided that vaccines on any level are just not safe. Adjustments to lifestyle can be made to ensure risk of exposure is extremely low, or other precautions would be taken, so we're not going to expose your dogs to some of those diseases, You know, i.e. parvovirus, not walking in those big heavily trafficked areas, i.e. the dog walk. What about some of the other vaccines that your dog receives, such as rabies vaccine, perhaps the Lyme disease vaccine, the kennel cough vaccine? The VaxiCheck Titer test system only tests for distemper, parvo, and adenovirus, and it will not give any information on antibody levels against rabies disease, Lyme, or Bordetella parainfluenza. There are titer tests available for rabies, however, these are send out tests to outside labs and they're much more expensive to run. The titer test for rabies is also not considered the equivalent of having an actually receive the vaccine. So it's not our standard recommendation to perform the rabies titers instead of vaccinating unless they're extenuating circumstances. Because rabies is considered a public health risk, the prevention of the disease is highly regulated with special rules that veterinarians are obliged to follow. Is it safe to take antioxidant supplements during chemotherapy and radiation therapy? So this question was posed, you know, to a specialist, and this was directed towards a person with cancer, but is it very much applicable to our dog and cats. So the big question posed to the, to the internal medicine specialist the oncologist is, is it safe to take antioxidant supplements during chemo and radiation therapy? And does this concern extend to foods containing high levels of antioxidants, such as oranges, orange juice, which contain a high amount of vitamin C? The answer is interesting, well first antioxidant supplementation during conventional chemotherapy and radiation therapy its a controversial subject. Some studies are suggesting that taking antioxidant supplements during treatment may be beneficial, however there are just as many studies that are telling us that this may be harmful. The scientific evidence on this topic is not strongly for or against taking antibiotic supplements during cancer treatment. It is possible that taking antioxidant supplements during treatment can protect normal tissues from the damaging side effects of treatments and may improve tumor response and patient survival. On the other hand, some studies are indicating that taking antioxidant supplements may interfere with chemotherapy and radiation therapy by reducing their effectiveness. It's possible that antioxidants may protect tumor cells in addition to healthy cells From the oxidative damage intentionally caused by conventional treatments. This in turn may reduce the effectiveness of the treatments. We need more research to definitively settle the question of whether or not it's safe and you should or shouldn't be taking antioxidants during cancer treatment. No two people, no two animals, or cancers are the same. Currently, there is no evidence to support that a diet rich in antioxidants, including whole foods or drinks, should be avoided during cancer therapy. It is believed that the level of one particular antioxidant in a whole food is really unlikely to interfere with treatment. But this cannot be said about high-dose antioxidant supplements. And there's this one study in particular that's been highlighted uh, within the last few months. And now there are warnings being posted to some pharmacies saying if you're on chemotherapy, do not be taking antioxidant supplements. This was the study that came out it said that breast cancer patients who take the dietary supplements known as antioxidants as well as iron vitamin b12 and omega-3 fatty acids during chemotherapy may be at increased risk of disease recurrence and death according to a new study results appearing in the journal of clinical oncology led by researchers at the swog cancer research network a cancer clinical trials network funded by the national cancer institute through the national institutes of health The study confirms previous medical guidance advising cautious use of any supplements other than a multivitamin for cancer patients undergoing chemotherapy. A small but growing body of research in the last 20 years shows that despite their cancer-fighting reputation, antioxidants such as vitamin E, beta-carotene, and selenium may actually increase the risk of some cancers, cause some cancers to return after treatment, or interfere with the effects of chemotherapy. So one big point to take away from this study was a relatively small sample size but there's some pretty key findings that came out and this is what the researchers found. Patients who are reported taking any antioxidant including vitamins A, C, E and creatinoids and coenzyme Q10 were 41% more likely to have their breast cancer return when they took the supplements both before and during chemotherapy treatment. Patients had a similar but weaker increased risk of death when taking these antioxidants. Patients taking vitamin B12, iron, and omega-3 fatty acid supplements were at significantly greater risk of breast cancer recurrence and death. Patients taking multivitamins showed no signs of poorer or better outcomes after chemotherapy. So the big takeaway here, what they directed to people, and I think what needs to be directed as you being a pet parent, that if your dog or your cat has cancer, and you're choosing the path of conventional therapy, in particular chemotherapy. You need to be informing your veterinarian about what you're planning on giving your dog or cat. No question, antioxidants, array of these different supplements have huge, huge benefit. But they work so much differently when you're comparing it to how you know this conventional uh, medicine is working. You know, chemotherapy is a strong, strong, strong drugs that are meant to cause cell death. And they kind of blanket the body in terms of, you know, so they're, yes, they might affect say your dog that has lymphoma or lymphatic type cancer, but they're affecting all of your dog's body. And partly how they're working is they're, by causing cell death, they you know rapidly attack those cells. You get inflammation, you get free radicals produced, which causes more cell death. And antioxidants, you know, work by preventing that. But for many people and for many pet parents, Chemotherapy is not an option. And for many of the dog cancers, it's not, you know, it's not curative. Yes, it can buy you some time. In some cases, not very much with potential for some serious secondary side effects. So if but if you're going down that path and there are some specific some of the uh, say veterinary cancers are chemo responsive and you're choosing that course, you need to be talking to uh, your veterinarian about it. If not, then by all means, you need to be using some of these antioxidants, some of the flavonoids, some of these really good quality supplements. And the last big point I think that needs to be made too is that, you know, they they pointed out in the study that just people taking these multivitamin supplements. So if you're just giving your dog a good quality, so multivitamin, multimineral supplement... Something like my supplement, the dog supplement, or the cat supplement, that's kind of supplementing what they have. So you're not giving one particular antioxidant in a huge high dose, that's completely fine. And I encourage you to be giving that to your dog or cat, but you're not focusing on you know, really high doses, say for instance, of vitamin E, or really high doses of coenzyme Q10. And then my other last big point, is there's certain things that you should consider still be giving regardless of whether or not your dog is on chemotherapy or on radiation therapy. Like, so you should be giving one this like a good broad spectrum, multivitamin, multimineral supplement. You need to be feeding your dog really well. Ideally, you're feeding them a canine cancer diet. We're feeding high protein, high fat, and we're feeding minimal to no carbohydrates, which is huge. Third, look at other specific things that may be beneficial while your dog is on chemo radiation. Uh, Melatonin really comes to mind for me, for sure, in terms of it seems to... Aid and actually be beneficial for animals that are on chemo so some of those chemo responsive cancers then lastly too which i've talked to you know I talked to you guys about an array of different times uh, is cbd thc ideally you're going to get closer to a one-to-one ratio a one part cbd one part thc if you live in a state where you can't get that just go for something like my cbd supplement where it's you know it's it has it's a whole plant extract that includes not just cannabidiol but all the other uh, potential healing cannabinoids coming from the hemp plant, and it has a small amount of THC as well. But that's key, and that there is no link between that and any contraindications with animals on chemotherapy, that animals that are on radiation therapy. And then I also encourage you to have a have a look at uh, the video I did on YouTube about how to make your own dandelion uh, root tea tincture which has got some big uh, results coming out now uh, from the university of windsor in canada showing once again some of the specific benefits for some of these really like impossible to treat born uh, leukemias in people seeing some really great good results and you know those are kind of the foundational things whether my dog was on chemo he was on radiation i would still be giving him cbd thc a good broad spectrum stuff supplement I'm making some dandelion root tea, tea, tea tincture, and if it was a, a cancer linked to a hormone, I'd definitely be also getting on melatonin. Lastly, say your dog or cat's got a bloody nose, like what do you do? So this is a good question. I actually had a pet parent, so talk to me about this exact same condition. This is a recurring bloody nose. And they're like, "Well, what do I do?" It was like, "Okay, it was emergency right now. It's really difficult when we're dealing with the pandemic just to get access to veterinarians and veterinary care." So I was able, able to guide them through some specific first aid steps. But I wanted to, I'm gonna, we're gonna share these at the end, including a specific uh, Chinese medicine supplement which I was using in veterinary practice, and I was really pleased to see that even some of the conventional veterinarians are using now. So first, what is it? It's called epistaxis in veterinary medicine. You got blood coming out of the nose initially you've got all this bleeding going on and you're like you can't get it under control there's a, there's a few things you should be running through a little bit of a checklist uh, that i would advise that you share with your veterinarian you know first what medication is your dog or your cat on are they on any non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications you know, i.e you know medicam Rimadyl. that can actually cause more bleeding is it possible that your dog has got into rat poison, any rat poison around? Look really close at your dog or your cat's face. Are there any deformity or asymmetry, right? Is the bridge of the nose swollen? Right in the corner, uh, there's a thing called the third eyelids. Are they sort of popped up? Does one eye seem to protrude more than the other? Does one tear anymore? Is it possible that there's been any trauma to the nose? Like your dog, was he playing really roughly and smacked his nose into the wall? Could he have... Did he think he could have had have something up his nose, such as a foxtail or a grass on? Has your dog been sneezing? Open your dog's mouth, have a good look inside, look at the gums. Are they? Is there any blood at all? Did the gums seem pale? Is there ev- any evidence of bleeding anywhere else in the nose? You may see this black, starry tool with intestinal bleeding. Is there any unusual bruising? Is this the first nosebleed that's, that's happened? Is blood coming out, out of only one nostril or both nostrils? Your veterinarian is going to look at certain differentials. Fungal infections is a classic cause of nosebleed. Fungi are inhaled, and if your dog's immune system is compromised or excessively exposed, the fungi can take root and begin to grow in the nasal cavity. In cats, the most common nasal infection is caused by cryptococcus neoformans. The good news here is that there's a blood test for this fungal pathogen, and it's very accurate. Any positive number is significant and warrants treatment. In dogs, fungal infections are not so simple. The most common organisms are aspergillus and penicillin species. Blood tests are not as accurate, especially since these are there are other species of aspergillus besides this specific one that can actually cause uh, the bleeding nose. Another fungi that can also affect our dogs is called blastomyces. Urine antigen testing is accurate for diagnosis and blood testing is also available. There's a study published about 10 years ago, and they did a review of about 200 dogs with epistaxis. And these are what they reported as the most common causes. 30% of the dogs had nasal tumors, another, just another 29% had trauma. 17% had inflammation of the nose due to unknown cause, such as idiopathic rhinitis. Like there's inflammation in there, causing maybe to sneeze in the bloody nose. 10% had low platelets. These are responsible for blood clotting. 3% had some other blood clotting abnormality. 2% had high blood pressure. Another 2% had two through abscesses. What are the more some common causes of blood clotting disorders? Rat poisoning, Von Willebrand's disease, this genetic disease, uh, hemophilia, liver failure. What are some of the diseases causing a low platelet count? We can have the immune system attacking the platelets called immune-mediated thrombocytopenia, bone marrow disease, some of the drug reactions. I used to say some of the chemotherapy drugs, say estrogen, if you're treating incontinence, uh, maybe tapazole, treating these cats that have hyperthyroid, um, FIV, feline leukemia virus, some of the tick-borne diseases in dogs, such as ehrlichia, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, babesia. So say this all happens and you're like, okay, what's the first day? Which is probably the biggest thing and thing you guys should probably take away from uh, this little section of the podcast. You're at home and your dog just knows is bleeding, bleeding, it's not stopping. So the first big thing, like just keep yourself calm, right? The more frantic you are, you're all worked up, your dog, your dog gets worked up, his heart rate goes up, more excitement, high, higher blood pressure means more bleeding. Next, get an ice pack, right? Apply that to the bridge or the outside of the nose right obviously you want to make sure don't close off the nostril you want to make sure your dog can still breathe but get cold cold right on top of there the cold is going to constrict small blood vessels which is going to slow the bleeding next do not insert anything in there you know such as cotton swabs or anything up the nose all that's going to do is you're going to generate sneezing going to make the bleeding worse if you happen to have a nasal spray such as afrin that may help constrict blood vessels and lead to re- relief. Then lastly, there's a, a specific Chinese herb which we used to use in veterinary practice. And it's interesting to see that some of the conventional veterinarians are recommending it as well. It's called Yunin Bio. And short-term can work pretty quick. So if you've got an animal, we don't, maybe it has got allergic rhinitis, they've got allergies causing inflammation in the nose, you're dealing with recurring cases of nose bleeding, I'd encourage you to at least see uh, get your veterinarian to, uh, source you some of this Unimbio. So say if you do all this and it doesn't stop the bleeding, you need to be getting to your veterinarian as soon as possible. They're going to be doing that workup. Also, don't forget that if your dog or your cat has a bleeding nose, they're going to swallow a great deal of draining blood, and this can lead to black stool or even vomiting with blood in it. And after a bloody nose, such findings just are usually a reflection of you know what's happened. They swallowed all that blood. And they don't necessarily indicate bleeding in the gastrointestinal tract. Well, thanks you guys for listening to this edition of the Dr. Jones Veterinary Secrets podcast. Any questions or comments, feel free to send me an email at podcast at veterinarysecrets.com or you can also post under my blog. I post all the podcast episodes on the blog. It's at www.theinternetpetvet.com. So once again, thanks for listening and I'll talk to you guys next week. This is Dr. Jones.